GL reads books and difficult legal stuff aloud. No stutzo, guests or comedians in this episode. Nearly all our episodes provide a companionable, chatty and entertaining experience. These Judy DL reads stuff aloud episodes are solid legal documents and a serialised novel that I like. Judge were wrong, judge were wrong. Radioactive Cockroach is recorded with gratitude and respect for Elders past, present and emerging on the land of the Jajawara. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello cockroaches and welcome to another episode of Judy DL Reads Stuff Aloud. There's no cockroach material being read aloud this time. This is pure comfort. There's a poem about footy culture in Victoria that can be enjoyed by those that like and those who don't like footy. And we continue enjoying Dorothy L. Sayers' Strong Poison. I bet she couldn't help it. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could. Or I could. Bessie couldn't help it, though she tried to be good. Oh, so good. She was pretty as the heaven above. Oh, boy, and how she could love. Bessie had affection that was simply. Oh, but then don't go down in the mud, darling. Bessie couldn't help it. We're now going to go back to galloping through the plot with a few sidelines and insights that I can't resist making. So we're here now at Chapter 9, Chapter 1X, in which Bunter ingratiates himself into Mr Urquhart's kitchen and a tea of buttered crumpets and the confidence of the cook and a maid. All these chapters that I'm skipping over contain the plot points that are embedded in them, but also the most delicious insights into the characters and social mores that made up the world that Dorothy L. Sayers lived in between the wars. So in a wonderful encounter downstairs in a middle-class household, we establish the poisoning symptoms that killed Philip Boyce had been occurring for some time and that the maid and the cook had been very well prepared by the prosecution for giving evidence at the trial. We also learn that Urquhart had ensured in detail that it was able to be proved that all food eaten at that house was eaten by more than one person and was not contaminated by deliberate poison or accidental poison. Some would even say that Urquhart had been preternaturally thorough. We also learn that Urquhart visited his elderly relative, one Mrs Rayburn, in the country immediately after Boy's death and that she was a scandal-ridden actress in her youth. She had married and had two children who had died in the cholera and that Philip Boy's, before his death, had also been acquainted with Mrs Rayburn. Chapter 10, or X. Now this chapter features Chief Inspector Parker, Whimsy's close confidant and colleague, Whimsy himself and one Mrs Bullfinch, who with her husband Mr Bullfinch runs a pub, but formerly and not very long ago was 
a barmaid. Mrs Bullfinch is definitely a character worth encountering in the full, but we're confining ourselves here to her plot points. She recalls a particular date because she remembers it was around the summer solstice that at 10pm a man doubled over in pain requested a double brandy. He scoffs down the brandy to alleviate the pain and also mixes a plain white powder in a glass of water and downs that. She no longer has the chemist's paper in which that powder was wrapped. We then go with Whimsy to Mr Crofts, Harriet's solicitor, and he's cross. Whimsy has laid down his hand to the police. At the moment, they could have used Mrs Bullfinch to plant reasonable doubt. Now, the police will go and search for that paper, and if they discover that it's not arsenic, well, they're shot. Whimsy, outraged, is utterly determined to have her exonerated, rather than perceived as having got off on a technicality. Whimsy now gallops over to Urquhart's office and exchanges a significant glance with the new secretary, noting, with pleasure, she's from Miss Clemson's Catherine. Urquhart appears anxious, very pale, with unusual freckly spots. His hair is sleek and glossy. He's glad his household was cleared and shrugs off his careful precautions as a loyally pedantic concern regarding food hygiene. Philip Boyce, the deceased, had no financial expectations. Whimsy realises that Cremorne Garden and Great Aunt Mrs Rayburn, whom Urquhart has been visiting, are one and the same and that she is largely comatose and dying, as they say, has gone all childish in her 90s. Whimsy wonders if boys had hopes of inheritance. Urquhart says, definitely not, and boys had been told so 18 months earlier. Urquhart himself is the legatee. He refers to a clause in the will absolutely excluding boys and his family. Makes a show of searching his deed box for the will to prove his point. Suddenly remembers he's left it at home and makes an appointment with Whimsy to visit him there the following day. Galloping into chapter X1, otherwise known as 11, Whimsy visits Urquhart in his home at breakfast. He marks automatically that the document with which he is presented was typed on a Woodstock machine with a chipped lowercase p and an A slightly out of alignment. Urquhart claims that Boy's side of his family was bitterly excluded from her will in vengeance for their having cut Cremona Garden and her notoriety out of their lives. That is why he, Urquhart, gets the lot and could not share it with Boy's. Galloping along with Whimsy, we go home with him where he reads the proofs of Harriet's novel, learning she writes evocatively of a bohemian love affair and knows way too much about arsenic. Proceeds to Holloway Jail and they discuss the toxic folly that is feeling jealous of former lovers. Whimsy goes home to a note from Miss Murchison the cattery planted secretary to Urquhart. In it, she discloses that Urquhart 
has a sweet tooth, munching on Turkish delight while dictating. And since she has a significant background in stockbroking, she is suspicious of Urquhart's contacts. Whimsy should look into Urquhart's connection with the Megatherium Trust before their big crash. He notices the same chipped P and misaligned A in the typeface of Miss Murchison's note. This letter and Mrs Rayburn, Cromorna Gardens, will, were typed on the one machine. Bunter is dispatched with another note for Miss Murchison. Chapter X11, which I believe is 12. Whimsy has a ghastly Christmas at the family seat, with everyone gossiping poisonously about Harriet and Boyce. But he does catch up with his friend and genius financier, Freddie Arbuthnot. From Freddie, he learns there is something dodgy about Urquhart and Megatherium. Freddie's inquiries are ongoing. He also learns that Freddie is to marry the daughter, Rachel, of a Jewish financier and asks Whimsy to stand best man with him at the synagogue. And I note that Dorothy L. Sayers, amid the rampant pre-war anti-Semitism of the upper classes, seems to be making something of an inclusive statement. But amid all the family ghastliness, Lord Peter enjoys a quiet tete-a-tete with his sister Mary, who has been, incidentally, dating Chief Inspector Parker for some years. Mary persuades Peter to be a traditional big brother and persuade Parker to show his hand and propose like a gentleman. In short, ask him his intentions. And so now we proceed to the next part of the plot, get further insights into that wonderful woman that is Miss Murchison and into the work of probably the Salvation Army in London's East End before the Second World War. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could Bessie couldn't help it though she tried to be good. Oh, so good. She was pretty as the heavens above. Oh, boy, and how she could love. Bessie had a face. Chapter 13. Miss Murchison felt a touch of excitement in her well-regulated heart as she rang the bell of Lord Peter's flat. It was not caused by the consideration of his title or his wealth or his bachelorhood, for Miss Murchison had been a businesswoman all her life and was accustomed to visiting bachelors of all descriptions without giving a second thought to the matter. But his note had been rather exciting. Miss Murchison was 38 and plain. She had worked in the same financier's office for 12 years. They had been good years on the whole, and it was not until the last two that she had even begun to realise that the brilliant financier who juggled so many spectacular undertakings was juggling for his life under circumstances of increasing difficulty. As the pace grew faster, he added egg after egg to those which were already spinning in the air. There is a limit to the number of eggs which can be spun by human hands. One day an egg slipped and smashed then another, then a whole omelette of eggs. The juggler fled from the stage and escaped abroad, he 
his chief assistant blew out his brains, the audience booed, the curtain came down, and Miss Murchison, at 37, was out of a job. She had put an advertisement in the papers and had answered many others. Most people appeared to want their secretaries young and cheap. It was discouraging. Then her own advertisement had brought an answer from a Miss Clemson who kept a typing bureau. It was not what she wanted, but she went. And she found that it was not quite a typing bureau after all, but something more interesting. Lord Peter Whimsey, mysteriously at the back of it all, had been abroad when Miss Murchison entered the Cattery, and she had never seen him until a few weeks ago. This would be the first time she'd actually spoken to him. An odd-looking person, she thought. But people said he had brains. Anyhow, the door was opened by Bunter, who seemed to expect her and showed her at once into a sitting room lined with bookshelves. There were some fine prints on the wall, an orbusen carpet, a grand piano, a vast Chesterfield and a number of deep and cosy chairs, upholstered in brown leather. The curtains were drawn, a wood fire blazed on the hearth, and before it stood a table with a silver tea service whose lovely lines were delightful to the eye. As she entered, her employer uncoiled himself from the depths of an armchair, put down a black letter folio, which he had been studying, and greeted her in the cool, husky and rather languid tones which she had already heard in Mr Urquhart's office. Frightfully good of you to come round, Miss Murchison. Beastly day, isn't it? I'm sure you want your tea. Can you eat crumpets, or would you prefer something more up-to-date? Thanks, said Miss Murchison, as Bunter hovered obsequiously at her elbow. I like crumpets very much. Oh, good. Well, Bunter will struggle through with the teapot ourselves. Give Miss Murchison another cushion, and then you can toddle off. Back at work, I suppose? How's our Mr Urquhart? Oh, he's all right. Miss Murchison had never been a chatty girl. There's one thing I wanted to tell you. Plenty of time, said Winsy. Don't spoil your tea. He waited on her with a kind of anxious courtesy which pleased her. She expressed admiration of the big bronze chrysanthemums heaped here and there about the room. Oh, I'm glad you like them. My friends say they give a feminine touch to the place, but Bunter sees to it, as a matter of fact. They make a splash of colour and all that, don't you think? The books look masculine enough. Oh, yes, they're my hobby, you know. Books and crime, of course. But crime's not very decorative, is it? I don't care about collecting hangman's ropes and murderer's overcoats. What are you going to do with them? Is the tea all right? I ought to have asked you to pour out. But it always seems to me rather unfair to invite a person and then make her do all the work. What do you do when you're not working, by the way? Do you keep a secret passion for anything? I go to concerts, said Miss Murchison. And when there isn't a concert, I put something on the gramophone. Musician? No. Never could afford to learn properly. I ought to have been, I dare say. But there was more money in being a secretary. I suppose so. Unless one is absolutely first class, and I should never have been that, and third class musicians are a nuisance. They have a rotten time too, said Whimsy. I hate to see them in cinemas, poor beasts, playing the most ghastly tripe, sandwiched in with snacks of Mendelssohn and torn off gobbets of the unfinished. Have a sandwich. Do you like Bach or any of the moderns? He wriggled onto the piano stool. Oh, I'll leave it to you, said Miss Murchison, rather surprised. I rather feel like the Italian concerto this evening. 
It's better on the harpsichord, but I haven't got one. I find Bach good for the brain, steadying influence and all that. Now, Whimsy said he didn't have a harpsichord, but it's better on the harpsichord, and so I'm using a recording of the harpsichord, because that'll be better for you. He played the concerto through, and then, after a few seconds' pause, went on to one of the 48. He played well and gave a curious impression of controlled power, which, in a man so slight and so fantastical in manner, was unexpected and even a little disquieting. When he had finished, he said, still sitting at the piano, Did you make inquiry about the typewriter? Yes, it was bought new three years ago. Good. I gather, by the way, that you are probably right about Urquhart's connection with the Megatherium Trust. That was a very helpful observation of yours. Consider yourself highly commended. Thank you. Anything fresh? No, except that the evening after you called at Mr Urquhart's office, he stayed on a long time after we had gone, typing something. Whimsy sketched an arpeggio with his right hand and demanded, How do you know how long he stayed and what he was doing if you had all gone? You said you wanted to know of anything, however small, that was in the least unusual. I thought it might be unusual for him to stay on by himself, so I walked up and down the Princeton Street and round Red Lion Square till half past seven. Then I saw him put the light out and go home. Next morning I noticed that some papers I'd left just inside my typewriter cover had been disturbed, so I concluded that he had been typing. Perhaps the charwoman disturbed them? (laughs) Not she. She never disturbs the dust, let alone the cover. Whimsy nodded. You have the making of a first-class sleuth, Miss Murchison. Very well. In that case, our little job will have to be undertaken. Now, look here. You quite understand that what I'm going to ask you to do is something illegal? Yes, I understand. And you don't mind? No. I imagine that if I'm taken up, you will pay any necessary costs? Certainly. And if I go to prison? I don't think it will come to that. There's a slight risk, I admit. That is, if I'm wrong about what I think is happening that you might be brought up for attempted theft or being in possession of safe-breaking tools, but that is the most that could happen. Oh, well, it's all in the game, I suppose. You mean that? Yes. Splendid! Well, you know that deed box you brought in to Mr Urquhart's room the day I was there? Yes, the one marked Rayburn. Where is it kept? In the outer office where you could get hold of it? Oh, yes, on a shelf with a lot of others. Good. Would it be possible for you to get left alone in the office any day for, say, half an hour? Well, lunchtime, I'm supposed to go out at half past twelve and come back at half past one. Mr Pond goes out then, but Mr Urquhart sometimes comes back. I couldn't be certain that he wouldn't pop out on me. Uh, It would look funny if I wanted to stay on after 4.30, I expect, unless I pretended I'd made a mistake and wanted to stay and put it right. I could do that. I might come extra early in the morning when the charwoman is there. Would it matter her seeing me? It wouldn't matter very much, said Whimsy thoughtfully. She'd probably think you had legitimate business with the box, 
I'll leave it to you to choose the time. But what am I to do? Steal the box? Oh, not quite. Do you know how to pick a lock? Oh, not in the least, I'm afraid. I often wonder what we go to school for, said Whimsy. We never seem to learn anything really useful. I can pick a pretty lock myself, but we haven't much time and you'll need some rather intensive training. I think I'd better take you to an expert. Should you mind putting your coat on and coming round with me to see a friend? Oh, not at all. I should be delighted. He lives in the Whitechapel Road, but he's a very pleasant fellow. If you can overlook his religious opinions, personally I find them rather refreshing. Bunter! Get us a taxi, will you? On the way to the East End, Whimsy insisted upon talking music, rather to Miss Murchison's disquietude. She began to think there was something a little sinister in this pointed refusal to discuss the object of their journey. By the way, she ventured, interrupting something Whimsy was saying about fugal form, this person we are going to see, he has a name? Or well, now you mention it, I believe he has, but he's never called by it. It's rum. Not very, perhaps, if he uh, gives lessons in lockpicking. I mean, his name's Rum. Oh, what is it then? Oh, dash it, I mean, Rum is his name. Oh, I beg your pardon. But he doesn't care to use it now that he is a total abstainer. Then what does one call him? I call him Bill, said Whimsy, as the taxi drew up at the entrance to a narrow court. But when he was at the head of his profession... They called him Blindfold Bill. He was a very great man in his time. Paying off the taxi man, who had obviously taken them for welfare workers till he saw the size of his tip and now did not know what to make of them, Whimsy steered his companion down the dirty alleyway. At the far end was a small house from whose lighted windows poured forth the loud strains of a chorus of voices supported by a harmonium and other instruments. Oh dear, said Whimsy. We've struck a meeting. It can't be helped. Here goes. Now, just a, a small aside here by way of an apology. I admit that it's difficult to listen to an unrelenting Australian accent being upper class, but it's perhaps even worse listening to an unrelenting Australian accent try and be a cockney. And I'm about to not do this. Dorothy Elsace has written it out kind of in dialect, so... It's difficult, but I'm not going to try and do the accent because that would embarrass all of us. Pausing until the strains of glory, glory, glory had been succeeded by a sound of fervent prayer, he hammered lustily at the door. Presently, a small girl put her head out and seeing Lord Peter uttered a shrill cry of delight. <gasps> Hello, Esmeralda Hyacinth, said Whimsy. Is Dad in? Oh, sir, please, sir, they'll be so pleased. Will you step in and... Oh, please. Well, please, sir, will you sing Nazareth? No, I will not sing Nazareth, not on any account, Esmeralda. I'm surprised at you. Daddy says Nazareth isn't worldly and you do sing so beautiful, said Esmeralda, her mouth drooping. Whimsy hid his face in his hands. This comes of having done a foolish thing once, he said. One never lives it down. I won't promise, Esmeralda, but we'll see. But I want to talk business with Dad when the meeting's over. The child nodded. 
At the same moment, the praying voice within the room ceased amid ejaculations of Alleluia! And Esmeralda, profiting by this momentary pause, pushed open the door and said loudly, Here's Mr Peter and a lady! The room was small, very hot and very full of people. In one corner was the harmonium, with the musicians grouped about it. In the middle, standing by a round table covered with a red cloth, was a stout square man with a face like a bulldog. He had a book in his hand and appeared to be about to announce a hymn. But seeing Whimsy and Miss Murchison, he came forward, stretching out a large and hearty hand. Welcome one and welcome all, he said. Brethren, here is a dear brother and sister in the Lord, as has come out of the haunts of the rich and riotous living of the West End, to join with us in singing the songs of Zion. Let us sing and give praise. Alleluia! We know that many shall come from the East and from the West and sit down at the Lord's feast, while many that think themselves chosen shall be cast into outer darkness. Therefore let us not say, because this man wears a shiny eyeglass, that he is not a chosen vessel, or because this woman wears a diamond necklace and rides in her Rolls Royce, that she will not therefore wear a white robe and a crown in the New Jerusalem. Nor, because these peoples travels in the blue train to the Riviera, therefore they shall not be seen a casting down their golden crowns by the river of the water of life. We hears their talk sometimes in Hyde Parker Sundays, and it's bad and foolish, and leads to strife and envyings and not to charity. All we like sheep have gone astray, and well may I say so, having been a black and wicked sinner myself, till this here gentleman, for such he truly is, laid his hand upon me as I was a bustin' of his safe, and was the instrument under God of turning me from the broad way that leadeth to destruction. Oh, brethren, what a happy day that was for me. Alleluia! What a shower of blessings came over me by the grace of the Lord. Let us unite now in thanksgiving for Evan's mercies in number 102. Esmeralda, give our dear friends a hymn book. I'm sorry, said Whimsy to Miss Murchison. Can you bear it? I fancy this is the final outbreak. I love a good sound effect and it was impossible and I did spend way too long trying to find a recording of kind of Cockney singing of this hymn. The only one I could find from the era are American bluegrass and I've put them in just because they're irresistible. You have to imagine this as a Cockney sing song with a harmonium. Harmonium, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer and all kinds of music burst out with a blare which nearly burst the eardrum. The assembly lifted its combined voices and Miss Murchison, to her amazement, found herself joining, at first self-consciously and then with a fine fervour, in that stirring chant, sweeping through the gates, 
sweeping through the gates of the New Jerusalem, washed in the blood of the Lamb. who appeared to find it all very good fun, carolled away happily without the slightest embarrassment. Whether because he was accustomed to the exercise or merely because he was one of those imperturbably self-satisfied people who cannot conceive of themselves as being out of place in any surroundings, Miss Murchison was unable to determine. To her relief, the religious exercise came to an end with the hymn and the company took their leave with many handshakings all round. The musicians emptied the condensed moisture from their wind instruments politely into the fireplace and the lady who played the harmonium drew the cover over the keys and came forward to welcome the guests. She was introduced simply as Bella and Miss Murchison concluded rightly that she was the wife of Mr Bill Rum and the mother of Esmeralda. Well now, said Bill, it's dry work preaching and singing. You'll take a cup of tea or coffee now, won't you? Whimsy explained that they had just had tea, but begged that the family might proceed with their own meal. Oh, it ain't hardly supper time yet, said Mrs Rum. Perhaps if you was to do your business with the lady and gentleman, Bill, they might feel inclined to take a bite with us later. It's trotters, she added hopefully. It's very kind of you, said Miss Murchison hesitatingly. Trotters want a lot of beating, said Whimsy, and since our business may take a little time, we'll accept with pleasure. If you're sure we're not putting you out. Not at all, said Mrs Rum heartily. Eight beautiful trotters they is, and with a bit of cheese, they'll go round easy. Come along, Merrill dear, your dad's got business. Mr Peter's going to sing, said the child, fixing reproachful eyes on Whimsy. Now don't you worry his lordship, rebuked Mrs Rum. I declare I'm ashamed of you. I'll sing after supper, Esmeralda, said Whimsy. Hop along now like a good girl or I'll make faces at you. Bill, I've brought you a new pupil. Always happy to serve you, sir, knowing as it's the Lord's work, glory be. Thank you, said Whimsy modestly. It's a simple matter, Bill, but as the young lady is inexperienced with locks and so on, I've brought her along to be coached. You see, Miss Murchison, before Bill here saw the light, praise God, put in Bill, he was the most accomplished burglar and safe-breaker in the three kingdoms. He doesn't mind my telling you this because he's taken his medicine and finished with it all now and he's a very honest and excellent locksmith of the ordinary kind. Thanks be to him that giveth the victory. But from time to time, when I need a little help in a righteous cause, Bill gives me the benefit of his great experience. Oh, and what happiness it is, miss, to turn them talents which I so wickedly abused to the service of the Lord. His only name be blessed, that bringeth forth good out of evil. That's right, said Whimsy, with a nod. Now, Bill... I've got my eye on a solicitor's deed box, which may or may not contain something which will help me get an innocent person out of trouble. This young lady can get access to the box. 
Bill, can you show her the way inside it? If, grunted Bill with sovereign contempt, course I can. Deed box? That's nothing. That ain't no field for a man's skill. Robbing the kid's money box. That's what it is with they trumpery little locks. There ain't a deed box in this here city what I couldn't open blindfold in boxing gloves with a stick of boiled macaroni. Oh, I know, Bill, but it isn't you that's got to do it. Can you teach the lady how to work it? Sure I can. What kind of lock is it, lady? I don't know, said Miss Murchison. An ordinary lock, I think. I mean, it has the usual sort of key. Not a Brahma or anything like that. Mr... Uh, that is, the solicitor has one set of keys and Mr Pond has another, just playing keys with barrels and wards. Ha! Oh, said Bill. Then half an hour will teach you all you want, miss. He went to a cupboard and brought out half a dozen lock plates and a bunch of curious thin wire hooks strung on a ring like keys. Are those pick locks? asked Miss Murchison curiously. That's what they are, miss. Engines of Satan. He shook his head as he lovingly fingered the bright steel. Many's the time such keys of these have led poor sinners in by the back gate into hell. This time, said Whimsy, they'll let a poor innocent out of prison into the sunshine, if any, in this beastly climate. Praise him for his manifold mercies. Well, miss, the first thing to understand is the construction of a lock. Now, just you look here. He picked up one of the locks and showed how, by holding up the spring, the catch could be thrust back. There ain't need of all them fancy wards, you see, miss, the barrel and the spring. That's all there is to it. Just you try. Mr Murchison accordingly tried and forced several locks with an ease that astonished her. Well now, miss, the difficulty is, you see, that when the lock's in place, you can't use your eyes. But you has your hearing and you has the feeling in your fingers. Give you by providence, praise his name, for that purpose. Now, what you has to do, miss, is to shut your eyes and see with your fingers like when you've got your spring hooked back sufficient to let the catch go past. I'm afraid I'm very clumsy, said Miss Murchison at the fifth or sixth attempt. Now, don't you fret, miss. Just take it easy and you'll find the right way of it come to you all of a sudden like. Just feel when it seems to go sweet and use your hands independent. Would you like to have a go at a combination while you're here, sir? I've got a beauty here. Give to me by Sam, you know what I mean. Many's the time I've tried to show him the error of his ways. No, Billy says... I ain't got no use for religion, he says, poor lost sheep. But I ain't got no quarrel with you, Bill, says he. And I'd like to give you this here little souvenir. Bill, Bill, said Whimsy, shaking a reproachful finger. I'm afraid this wasn't honestly come by. Well, sir, if I knowed the owner, I'd hand it over to him with the greatest of pleasure. It's quite good, you see. Sam put the soup in at the hinges and it blowed the old front clean off, lock and all. It's small, but it's a real beauty. New pattern to me, that is. But I mastered it, 
said Bill with unregenerate pride. In an hour or two. It'd have to be a good bit of work to beat you, Bill. Whimsy set the lock up before him and began to manipulate the knob, his fingers moving with micrometer delicacy and his ear bent to catch the fall of the tumblers. Lord, said Bill, this time with no religious intention. What a cracksman you'd have made if you'd have given your mind to it. Which the Lord in his mercy forbid you should. Too much work in that life for me, Bill, said Whimsy. Dash it. I lost it that time. He turned the knob back and started again. By the time the trotters arrived, Miss Murchison had acquired considerable facility with the more usual types of lock and a greatly enhanced respect for burglary as a profession. And don't you let yourself be hurried, miss, was Bill's final injunction. Else you'll leave scratches on the lock and do yourself no credit. Lovely bit of work that, ain't it, Lord Peter? Beyond me, I'm afraid, said Whimsy with a laugh. Practice, said Bill. That's all it is. If you'd started early enough, you'd have been a beautiful workman. <sighs> there ain't many of them nowadays. Glory be! that can do a real artistic job. It fair goes to my art to see an elegant bit of stuff like that blowed all to bits with gelignite. What's gelignite? Any fool can handle it, as doesn't mind making a blinking great row. Brutal, I calls it. Now, don't you get anchoring back after them things, Bill, said Mrs Rum reprovingly. Come along, do now, and eat your supper. If anybody's going to do such a wicked thing as breaking safes, what do it matter whether it's done artistic or inartistic? Oh, ain't that just like a woman begging your pardon, miss? Well, you know it's true, said Mrs Rum. I know these trotters look very artistic, said Whimsy, and that's quite enough for me. The trotters having been eaten, and Nazareth duly sung to the great admiration of the Rum family, Murchison found herself walking up the White Chapel Road with a bunch of picklocks in her pocket and some surprising items of knowledge in her mind. You make some very amusing acquaintances, Lord Peter. Yes, rather a jape, isn't it? But Blindfold Bill is one of the best. I found him on my premises one night and struck up a sort of alliance with him, took lessons from him and all that. He was a bit shy at first, but he got converted by another friend of mine. It's a long story. And the long and short of it is, he got hold of this locksmith business and is doing very well at it. Do you feel quite competent about locks now? I think so. What am I to look for when I get the box open? Well, said Whimsy, the point is this. Mr Urquhart showed me what purported to be the draft of a will made five years ago by Mrs Rayburn. I've written down the gist of it on a bit of paper for you. Here it is. Now, the snag about it is that that draft was typed on a machine which, as you tell me, was bought new from the makers only three years ago. Do you mean that's what he was typing that evening he stayed late at the office? It looks like it. Now, why? If he had the original draft, why not show me that? 
Actually, there was no need for him to show me it at all, unless it was to mislead me about something. Then, though he said he had the thing at home and must have known he had it there, he pretended to search for it in Miss Rayburn's box. Again, why? To make me think that it was already in existence when I called. The conclusion I drew is that if there is a will, it's not along the lines of the one he showed me. It rather looks like it, certainly. What I want you to look for is the real will. Either the original or the copy ought to be there. Don't take it away, but try to memorise the chief points in it, especially the names of the chief legatee or legatees and of the residuary legatee. Remember that the residuary legatee gets everything which falls in by a legatee's dying before the testatrix. I especially want to know whether anything was left to Philip Boyce or if any mention of the Boyce family is made in the will. Failing a will, there might be some other interesting document, such as a secret trust, instructing the executor to dispose of the money in some special way. In short, I want particulars of any document which may seem to be of interest. Don't waste too much time making notes. Carry the provisions in your head if you can and note them down privately when you get away from the office. And be sure you don't leave those skeleton keys about for people to find. Miss Murchison promised to observe these instructions and, a taxi coming up at that moment, Whimsy put her into it and sped her to her destination. You were bound to fall, but that's all. A boy kissed Bessie in the parlor one night. Oh, she rumbled it around the big Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could. Oh, look who's just happening to be wandering through my studio. Hello, Ian. Oh, hello, Judy. Well, it's just as well you're here because I'm about to upload something that acknowledges the existence of football and there are a few things I don't understand. Right. Now, the first one is the word C-A-R-N, Khan. Khan. Okay, Khan. Khan the mighty lions. Oh. Khan the mighty magpies. Khan the doggies? Yeah, Khan the doggies. (laughs) Anyway... What's it short for? Come on. Oh, come on. And it just doesn't sound the same if you say, come on, the magpies. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, doesn't work at the football. No, so we now know for all our international and some interstate and even some Victorian listeners, Khan. The second reference that we have to sort out here, Ian, is a chap by the name of Chicken Smallhorn. Chicken Smallhorn. Well, I wasn't sure that he actually existed, but... Apparently he did. He was a famous footballer, Wilfred Smallhorn, and he got his name Chicken from his mother, who apparently thought he was small and delicate like a little chicken, and the name stuck ever since. So he he didn't get it for cowardice? He wasn't given to chickening out? No, he was apparently a very brave player, very light and very good, and was well known because he got into television and radio later in life. How tall was he? 1.7 1.7 metres. That's not That's very big. not very big at all and no, quite would, light. It wouldn't get you selected these days. They're breeding them in some huge titan factory. 
Yeah, we, we wouldn't make the cut these days. No, no, no. The 30s produced two other Fitzroy Brownlow medalists, Chicken Smallhorn in 1933 and Dennis Dinny Ryan in 1936. Smallhorn was born and bred in Fitzroy. The brilliant winger was to play 149 games in an often stormy career. For Smallhorn, just playing for Fitzroy was the realisation of a childhood dream. I think it was uh, the thrill of my life. I don't think that I, I can be very emotional about this. I don't think that I've ever felt so well physically, mentally and every other way than playing with Fitzroy. It was, I'd do it again if I had the chance tomorrow. The, the opportunity of being so fit and playing for someone you loved, there was loyalty and plenty of it. And Bruce Dorr, tell me about Bruce Dorr. Well, Bruce Dorr, funnily enough, like Chicken Smallhorn, was born in a Melbourne suburb called Fitzroy. And he is a, an Australian poet, quite prolific and very well regarded. Oh, I love Fitzroy. Pretty, pretty special, and that's the team that Chicken Smallhorn played for. He was a lion. He was a lion. <laughs> Not a chicken at all. No. Well, listeners, here is my nod to the fact that we've had a grand final week, which Titus O'Reilly assures us had the worst grand final parades in our CBD ever. Life Cycle for Big Jim Phelan by Bruce Dorr. When children are born in Victoria, they are wrapped in club colours, laid in beribboned cots, having already begun a lifetime's barracking. Come, they cry, come, feebly at first, while parents playfully tussle with them for possession of a rusk. Ah, he's a little tiger. And they are. Hoisted shoulder high at their first league game, They are like innocent monsters who have been years swimming towards the daylight's roaring empyrean. Until now, hearts shrapneled with rapture, they break the surface and are forever lost, their minds rippling out like streamers in the pure flood of sound. They are scarfed with light, a voice like the voice of God booms from the stands. Ah, ya bludger! And the covenant is sealed. Hot pies and potato crisps they will eat. They will forswear the demons, cling to the saints and behold their team going up the ladder into heaven. And the tides of life will be the tides of the home team's fortunes. The reckless proposal after the one-point win. The wedding and honeymoon after the grand final. They will not grow old as those from the more northern states grow old. For them, it will always be three-quarter time with the scores level and the wind advantage in the final term. That passion persisting like a race memory through the welter of seasons, enabling old-timers by boundary fences to dream of resurgent lions and centaur-like figures from the past to replenish continually the present, so that mythology may be perpetually renewed 
and Chicken Smallhorn return like the maze god in a thousand shapes, the dancers changing but the dance forever the same. The elderly still loyally crying, Khan! Khan! If feebly, unto the very end, having seen in the six-foot recruit from Eaglehawk their hope of salvation. <laughs>